I usually don't like the headphones. Oh, really? Like if I'm doing a radio show or yeah, something like that. I know it's necessary, but it just sounds everything sounds weird to me. I've heard that. I've heard like other podcasters say that they like it so people don't talk over each other because mm. you can hear oh, like, right. each other in the microphone. Yeah. Um, oh, that's cool though. That do you do a lot of radio shows? No, I wouldn't say a lot. I do more podcasts than radio shows, but it's oh, usually yeah. uh, Zoom or over the phone. Oh, okay. Yeah, not yeah. a lot of live mm-hmm. in the same room podcasts. Oh, wow. So this will but be... Ra- but same as, you know, when I do radio shows, it's more similar to this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. that This will be an experience then. Yeah. The podcast live, <laughs> which is what I've been trying to do them. Um Mostly live. Mm-hmm. Not that Zoom's bad. Uh, I actually did an uh, over-the-phone interview with an author, uh, Robert Cass, and it was really good. And he's a very, very interesting guy. But I wish I would have done it in person. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it just... Yeah, there's something... I mean, it's fine, but mm-hmm. you can always kind of tell. And it yeah. just seems like it's better in person. Whoa. Oh, yeah. What happened? <laughs> did I do that? Oh, we're still good. Okay. Yeah. That's still good? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um, before before we get, begin, uh, just hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Chris. Uh, this is Cheetash. And today I have a very special guest, Mr. Bill Morrison. Uh, Bill, if you can please just introduce yourself uh, to the audience. Sure. Hi, Chris. Um, uh, I'm an artist, a cartoonist, illustrator, writer, editor, uh, I sort of wear a lot of hats. Mm-hmm. Um, most people know me for The Simpsons, but also I was editor-in-chief of Mad Magazine, and uh, I got to work on a Beatles project recently, the Yellow Submarine graphic novel. So I'm sort of checking all my childhood uh, passions off my bucket list. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. I Yeah, I did see the Beatles thing. Um, is that your favorite band? I would say it's my favorite band, yes. Um, I have, I would say my favorite rock performer is David Bowie. Okay. Uh, And I have some other favorite kind of solo artists. Mm -hmm. But as far as like, you know, a group of musicians working together, I I can't think of anybody better than the Beatles. Because I hear there's, I remember somebody telling me this that I used to work with a long time ago. He... He was saying, apparently, is there is this true? There's a rivalry between people who say Rolling Stones, people who say the Beatles. Yeah, I, you know, it's probably not, uh, you know, a tense or an intense rivalry. But, yeah, I mean, it's like, you know, people who drive Corvettes versus Camaros, you know, that kind of thing. Some people are just, yeah. you know, people like some people like Coke. Some people like Pepsi. Yeah, okay. But they don't get into fisticuffs over. (laughs) I'm trying to think from... I'm not the biggest... uh, I mean, I like rock and roll, uh, but I'm more of like a hip-hop kind of guy. Yeah. And maybe like an equivalent would be... uh, There's people who say Jay-Z or Nas is like the best... Or like a Notorious B.I.G. or Tupac or something like that. Well, isn't that kind of like a West Coast, East Coast kind of thing? Yeah. 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 So that's the thing is, yeah, there there was that rivalry. Um, 
and the two different sounds, which, yeah, at the time, it, I think the stereotype was New York rappers were more lyrical. Mm-hmm. West Coast had um, the G-Funk and the beats were different, like yeah. very different sounding. Well, I think the um, Beatles and the Stones, uh, I mean, they, they had a friend, friendly rivalry, um, but they were also friends. And, oh, really? And the Beatles actually wrote some songs for the Rolling Stones early on. Because oh, wow. the Stones started really as a like more of an R&B group. Oh, okay. Um, they, weren't, they were more into the blues, and they weren't really, um, for the most part, they didn't have the same rock and roll influences that the Beatles had. Mm-hmm. So, that, I mean, they were very, very different. It's just that when their sounds kind of congealed, not congealed, kind of uh, um, coalesce. Coalesce. That's the word I was looking for. When when they when their sounds kind of coalesced in the early '60s, and you had the British invasion, mm-hmm. they couldn't help but compete, even though their sounds were still pretty different. Um, you know, they were they were competing for the top spot on the charts, mm-hmm. um, and most people just sort of lump rock and roll of of all stripes in in together, even though they're are very very different forms of rock yeah oh yeah i know that from the movie school of rock with jack Black. oh yeah and he has That's a great ch- movie i love that yeah it's yeah. funny it's he's got the chalkboard and i remember there's one scene in the movie where he's there's like a b-roll and um you know there's it, there's music playing and it's just kind of progressing along the storyline i think they call it a b-roll and um he's lecturing to the students and he's got different uh, diagrams of like all these different types of rock and roll. Yeah. Um, one thing that I never, that I, that I kind of found out was how influential British, uh, like groups like were here. Mm-hmm. Like they were huge here Oh yeah. To, to the point where I almost think like, I, I almost didn't realize are there any American bands? But there are, you know. Oh, sure. But just... And, you know, in the be, before the Beatles came along and then the British invasion, you know, the Beatles kind of opened the door for all these British bands mm-hmm. to to get airplay, radio airplay in the States. Um, but prior to that, I mean, there you know, there were so many huge bands. But, um, you know, I mean, the Beach Boys was probably the biggest. Uh but you know, you had a lot of R and B groups, Motown. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, uh, even like rockabilly country band, country ish bands. You know, mm-hmm. rockabilly. Um, well, Elvis, obviously not a band oh, yeah. so much as a as a solo performer. Yeah. But I mean, he had a backing band. But Michael Jackson. Maybe well, that was yeah. later. But that was later, and that yeah. grew out of Motown because mm-hmm. the Jackson Five. Uh, Michael and his brothers were a Motown act. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They weren't actually from Detroit. They they came from Indiana, right? Yeah. But it was close enough that they could come up to Detroit and you know record and you know have wow. meetings and et cetera. But, yeah, <laughs> man, I, I didn't know this was going to be a yeah <laughs> discussion about music. I should, no, I would have come better prepared. I no, I I love it. I um, it's funny. I started out one interview with uh an author eric bean and it's funny we started off the interview kind of similar we were talking about music and 
he wrote a book about um, news and uh, it's the book was titled biases all around you and how to like um, uh, vet like news sources and stuff and I was I had told them how in today's world with digital music it's almost like artists are now making music for playlists versus making albums mm-hmm. because they know that in order to make money they make money off of the streams what are people mostly streaming are these uh, predetermined playlists on like spotify apple what have you mm-hmm. so they make the singles which are popular to get on the playlist because they know they're going to listen to that versus listening to their actual album that releases mm-hmm. so it's it's crazy how like just how music has changed in a way i mean i still remember buying cds and i mean i'm sure you probably bought vinyls i'm assuming like back in the day uh originally vinyl and then uh eight tracks when i was when i was a teenager i had eight tracks because i had an eight track player in my car my parents car Mm -hmm. um and then cassettes cassette tapes and then eventually cds in the 80s those came in yeah yeah (laughs) and i remember vowing you know because i had by you know by the 80s i had this pretty big record collection Mm -hmm. and then everybody was talking about this new format you know cds and they would (laughs) they would never deteriorate and you can't scratch them you know there were all these pluses that uh, people were expounding on and i remember i had a friend who was, you know, just, he was almost evangelizing, you know, trying to get me to come over to CDs. And I said, uh, at the time, like my favorite performer was Todd Rundgren and who you probably never heard of, but if I, I, if I played one of his songs, one of the big hits, you would go, Oh yeah, 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 I've heard that. Um, but anyway, I, you know, I love Todd Rundgren and I told him, I said, look, um, you know, CDs could be a fad. I'm not going to, you know, just start replacing my record collection with CDs. Um, but I'll I'll make you a deal. The minute Todd Rundgren music is available on CD, I will switch over. And so the day they came out with the first Todd Rundgren album on CD, he called me up and he said, guess what just came out? <laughs> and I was like, oh, damn it. Uh yeah, so at that point I started buying CDs. Uh but uh yeah, I never um I don't know, I remember all the the controversy in the 90s over um Napster. Oh, yeah. And that really changed everything because suddenly you could get music for free. Mm-hmm. And then now we have things like Spotify and you know, some people don't even buy physical uh versions of music and some people don't even download it anymore they just go to spotify or yeah um some other format like that and you know you can hear just about anything you want to hear at any time um i mean i kind of do that myself because now you know used to be you'd buy a car and it would have some form of player in it yeah it would have a tape player or it would have a cd player and now it has nothing, and I'm like, you know, I used to have like a like a case with all my favorite CDs, and I would, you know, take that on trips or have it in the car to listen to on my way to work. And now I just, you know, I put on uh, 
XM radio and you know oh, yeah. put on the 60s channel or the Beatles channel or underground garage or you know jazz or whatever wow yeah it i was just thinking about that cars uh, our my car still has a cd player but it's a little older but i know yeah newer cars are just bluetooth i don't even think they have auxiliary cord yeah uh, no cassette player cd player yeah, times are changing. But I still I, I still buy CDs even though like I've bought CDs recently that I've never played cuz I Oh wow. I don't currently My wife and I moved from California mm. a couple of years ago. So, you know, I've been setting up my studio, which is normally where I listen to music. Um and I still haven't like set up a sound system in there. So I've got CDs that you know, I bought more recently that I think okay once i get my sound system i'll play this but (laughs) it's just kind of sitting there waiting Uh, speaking of that did you i know you said you moved you moved here from california are you originally from california no i'm originally from detroit oh okay Okay. well suburban detroit okay yeah gotcha okay um now growing up how big was your family, brothers and sisters? There were six of us, yeah. six uh, uh-huh. siblings. Um, my mother was married uh, to a man with whom she had three children, and then he died. And then she married my father and then had three more. So three of my siblings are like half-siblings, but, I mean, I don't think of them that way. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they're they're just my brother and my sister's. Um, yeah, so I'm kind of the middle. I'm, it's weird because I'm my dad's oldest child, but I'm my mom's middle child. Oh, okay. Wow. And um, in the family, was there other creative siblings or were you the... Somewhat, one? yeah. My, my sister, my younger sister, Donna, uh, when she was in school, she was a pretty good artist and um, got into ceramics. So she made some, uh, for a while she was, you know, like making some really cool pots and ceramic things. Uh, she never went into that professionally. Uh, my oldest sister, Sue, who is 11 years older, uh, she's the one that got me started drawing. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't remember this, but she said when I was three years old, she sat me down at the kitchen table and, you know, with pencil and paper or crayons or whatever. And she drew a little stick man. And she said, I'm going to go do something, and I'll be back in a few minutes. And But while I'm gone, I want you to imitate what I did. So I want you to draw a stick man, mm-hmm. just like I did. And she went away, and I looked at what she had drawn, and I guess I must have thought, well, that's not what a person looks like. And so I started drawing a person and I gave it, I gave the body like a width. So it wasn't just a stick, just a line for the body. It was a double line, mm-hmm. you know? And um, I think I had like the arms coming out of the middle of the body instead of like, I didn't understand shoulders yet. Um, but other other than that, I guess it was by all accounts, a pretty good drawing because I added all these details like, hair and you know uh, fingers and clothing Mm -hmm. you know um enough to enough to the point where my sister came back and she kind of flipped out 
And she looked at my drawing and she just declared, oh my God, Billy, you're going to be an artist. And I guess that stuck with me. And it wasn't just that, but she was, she was the kind of person where I was kind of like, um, my mom, I mean, my mom had her hands full with a lot of kids. So my sister being the oldest and she's a teenager at this point, um, she sort of took me under her wing Mm -hmm. and it was fun for her to teach me how to draw things. And whatever I was into, like I would go through these phases growing up, you know, I had my, like my Charlie Brown and Snoopy phase and I had my Batman phase, which I still have to this day, but you know, I had monsters, you know, where I had monster models and I love the Wolfman and Frankenstein. So whatever I was into, she would, you know, say, hey, let's let's sit down and draw, and I'll show you how to draw the Wolfman. And she would get, like, a big piece of paper and crayons, and she would kind of look at my monster model that I had up on the shelf, and she would do a drawing of it. And then she would tack that up on my bedroom wall. And uh, I just remember it became like a regular playtime thing for us. But it got me, uh, sort of put it in my head that as I got older and started thinking about what am I going to be when I grow up, you know, and a lot of kids are thinking about firemen, policemen, doctor, lawyer. Um, I'm thinking artists, but I didn't really know what that entailed. I didn't, I didn't know if I was going to be like a painter or somebody who draws comic books or somebody just draws greeting cards. Uh, I didn't know, you know, but, um, as I, as I got into comics more and more then that became the focus. And that's when, um, I started sort of setting my course for what I would do later in life. Mm -hmm. It took me a while to get there, but, uh, yeah, but that was always in my head. I think probably from the point, uh, where I discovered Batman on television and started actually reading comic books. And, um, you know, so I, I guess I was like seven or eight. Mm-hmm. And then I really started thinking, okay, I want to be a comic book artist because that oh, seems wow. like a thing that people do. Like somebody does <laughs> these, somebody makes these things, and I mm-hmm. want to do that someday. I Like do... Sunday morning comics do, does that fit into any of this as yeah well? I mean I think I discovered those before I really got into comic books because that's where um, I mentioned Charlie Brown and Snoopy mm-hmm. like I remember reading Peanuts in the Sunday comics every you know every week and I think even the daily ones I would clip them out and save them oh yeah I had like a scrapbook I had like a Snoopy scrapbook and I got the little paperback books that reprinted the comics from right. earlier years. And yeah, for a couple of years I had, uh, I think it was in like seventh or not seventh, second grade, um, like second and third grade. I, um, my bedroom was just like Snoopy, everything, <laughs> you know, I, I had posters and bedspread. My bedspread was all peanuts and my curtains, you know, the drapes, uh, uh, the rug. I'm trying to think of wastebasket. I had, I'm trying to think of all the stuff I had. Was was there any, uh, how about, um, Garfield? That Uh, no Garfield came later. And by by then, you know, I was, I was more, I was probably a teenager or even, 
I'm not sure exactly when Garfield came out. I might have been in my early 20s mm-hmm. by then. Because that was, that was kind of my thing was Garfield, Calvin and Hobbes, mm-hmm. um, The Far Side. Um, those in, with what you were saying with the, the books that you could buy, that's what I would get more so than see them in the newspaper. Like mm-hmm. I would go to even the library or bookstore and just get like the Calvin and Hobbes collection book and just mm-hmm. spend a whole day reading those. Uh, those were great. Yeah, I but as far as comic books, I I didn't really get into comic books. Although I will say there's a, a graphic novel that I really like, uh, The Watchmen, mm-hmm. which I have. It's which, great. It's a great graphic yeah, novel. Yeah, fantastic. I mean, it's I mean it's essentially a book. I mean the the story, the the writing. I mean, really good. Yeah, it originally came out as 12 individual issues. Oh, okay. So originally it was okay. a miniseries. But, you know, a lot, a lot of times nowadays they'll take a like a story arc in comics. They'll take like four issues of a of Batman or six issues um, that are all kind of linked together. Like they have a, a story arc. Mm-hmm. And they'll put those in a, a book collection. They'll call it a graphic novel. Mm-hmm. And it sort of is, but it's really not because it wasn't. It was intended originally as individual issues that were continued one to the next, and and are even continued beyond that story arc. You know, there's okay. still there's still elements of that story that w- might continue to play out. Um, but Watchmen was really conceived as an original graphic novel. It's just that it had to be marketed as a miniseries. Okay. So in order to to kind of pay for it, they had to have it come out in 12 individual issues before they could collect it into the intended form, which was a a, a novel. Okay. I see. Well, that's very cool. Were uh growing up were you DC guy, Marvel? I or? was a DC kid because yeah. uh mainly because my the the um uh, the store that my dad first took me to to buy comics was in uh, Lincoln Park, Michigan, and it was you know just kind of like a mom and pop corner bookstore. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't it wasn't like a chain store, and it wasn't a comic shop because we didn't have comic we didn't really have dedicated comic shops back then. Um, there were a few in Detroit that were considered comic shops, but they were more they sold old comics, so they. You know they were they they were kind of like a an antique comic book specialty store. Mm-hmm. They didn't really carry the new stuff. Um, that didn't come until like you know the seventies um, with the, what they call the direct market, where you started having dedicated comic book stores that had the new comics every week and you know uh, all that that entails. Mm-hmm. But back then. It, they were just, you know, spinner racks in a bookstore and or in a drugstore or a 7-Eleven. Um, and you just had to, you know, if you were following a regular comic book series, you weren't, it wasn't always guaranteed that you were going to be able to find the next issue. You know, like you might get there and it sold out and then if you didn't have a bike and could ride around to a lot of different places, you might not you know, get it. Yeah. Um, but the, the store that my dad took me to 
didn't have Marvel comics, weirdly. I mean, they had everything else. I remember, you know, Archie, um, you know, Donald Duck, Mickey Mouse. Uh, they had Charlton comics, which were kind of, you know, like the um, lower-end superhero comic books. They had Dell, which covered, like, all the... They would do adaptations of all the popular TV shows and popular movies, okay. as well as funny animals that kind of thing. And they had a ton of DC comics, but no Marvels. And the only Marvel comic I ever saw growing up was a copy of Fantastic Four number 42. And the reason I remember that is because my best friend had it and he didn't have any other comics. He just had, for some weird reason, he had that one comic book and it was always laying on this table in his basement. So if I was over at his house playing, mm -hmm. If there was like a lull in whatever we were doing or, you know, he had to go upstairs and do something for his mom, I would pick up that comic book. And I remember every time, you know, I, was, I would do it out of boredom. And I, I knew I knew this comic book wasn't really for me. Mm -hmm. I didn't understand it. I knew that these characters were superheroes somehow, but they didn't wear masks and they didn't have capes. And they all wore the exact same costume except for the big rock guy yeah. who just wore blue <laughs> underwear. And, you know, so I just remember thinking, oh, Marvel Comics, they're just, you know, they're so boring. You know, they're not like DC Comics, you know, these, yeah. with these exciting superheroes with secret identities. That was the other thing. Like the characters didn't have secret identities. Everybody knew who they were. Um so they were just weird to me. And I remember seeing them on television because they had animated cartoons for Spider-Man and Fantastic Four. And I watched Spider-Man. I thought he was pretty cool. But I I guess I knew he there were comic books, but I'd never seen one. And uh, there were these very limited animation uh, cartoons that were on weekdays in the afternoon that had Thor, Iron Man... Uh, the Hulk, Captain America, and Submariner. Mm -hmm. So like every day of the week, there was a different superhero. And uh, those were kind of cool. Um, but again, I, you know, I didn't know where I could get comic book versions of these characters. It's, to me, they were just kind of cartoons. Um, so it wasn't until I was about, I think about 12 or 13, and my sister's friend came over one day with this stack of comic books about maybe you know three or four inches high and she said my brother was getting rid of these and I know you like comic books so I thought you might want them and I was very excited at first I was like oh great wow and I started looking through them and they're all marvels <laughs> and I was like uh Iron Man uh Thor well Thor has a cape at least but still doesn't wear a mask and uh so they just kind of sat in my room at, and I didn't really look at them. And then there was this one day it was raining and I couldn't go out and play. And uh, so I'm just having like a rainy, boring afternoon sitting in my room. And I decided to pick up one of the comics and read it. And it was eye opening. Mm -hmm. It was it was just kind of stunning how like I got to the end of that. And it was, of course, all the Marvel comics were continued next issue. Like the DCs were done in one, oh. you know, like you could read a Batman story and he didn't have to, 
worry about whether you had the issue before or whether you could find the issue after because, um, you know, you had a complete story just in one issue. But the Marvels, you know, they were like a soap opera. Wow. And so I remember, like, getting to the end of that issue and going, oh, my God, do I have the next one, you know? Um, so and they so, give you, like, a cliffhanger? Yeah. Like at the end? Yeah, there'd yeah. be, like, a cliffhanger at the end. And, uh, and that, I mean, brilliantly, that would make kids go, oh, I got to get the next issue. Whereas with DCs, you're like, yeah, if I get the next issue, great. If not, no big deal. Oh. <laughs> so I, wow. so I, I guess I think I was at the right age at that point. You know, so like 12, 13, where suddenly they like the the way Marvel comics were written really appealed to me. And, uh, you know, I at that point, I didn't care that much about, um, you know, that they weren't like the DC characters. Mm-hmm. And in fact, I kind of got into the fact that they had problems and they fought each other like the heroes would fight each other. That never happened in a DC comic. It would sometimes happen on the cover because they would have these great fake-out covers where you're like, Batman and Superman are enemies, what? (laughs) And then you open it up and there's like a an explanation for for why what you saw on the cover, you know, wasn't really happening that way. It was like a ruse to fool the Joker or something like that. (laughs) Um, But in the Marvel comics, they they really did fight each other. There would be these misunderstandings. Okay. And the and the heroes would you know like fight at first and then realize oh we're on the same team or we have the we have a common enemy so then they would team up oh okay (laughs) i never knew that about about those comics wow yep so yeah so to answer that was a long 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 way of answering (laughs) your question was i a marvel kid or a dc kid um no i love it i i love the detail in in the answer um you know when when you made that decision that this is kind of what you wanted to do what happened after you had decided that do you remember like were you now starting to think like okay what do i do as far as college after high school um like did you you went to school for like creative studies yeah i went to the at the time it was called the center for creative studies now it's the college for creative studies oh okay okay in detroit and uh well you know all through junior high and high school i started you know thinking okay i definitely want to be a marvel comics artist so i wasn't drawing batman as much anymore i was drawing spider-man and captain america and the hulk and that was where you know i was kind of headed Mm-hmm. And then when I got into college, I um, I remember like the first couple of years, every assignment I got, I would try to make it a comic assignment. Like even if even if it really wasn't, I would try to shoehorn comics into it somehow. Yeah. And uh, and I thought, you know, I'm I'm gonna really pursue this. And the more I learned about the comic book industry the more I realized that there were no publishers anywhere at the time but New York City. And um, I also learned that in order to be a comic book artist for one of the big publishers, you had to get your start by actually living in that city, and um, you had to be close by. Um, If you establish yourself, 
they would let you at some point, you know, you could live anywhere and you could just mail things in. But in order to really get started and um, get your feet wet, they wanted somebody who was there kind of at their beck and call. Mm -hmm. And uh, that terrified me because, um, I don't know, I I guess, you know, back in the 70s, I had this idea about New York City, which wasn't entirely untrue, that it was a very dangerous place and, uh, you know, a lot of crime. I mean, there were movies like The Out-of-Towners that sort of showed this, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, but it's no, like no. like this couple comes to New York for this business meeting and this the guy's going to get this big promotion. And uh, it's a very important thing and everything goes wrong and they get mugged and they have, they lose their hotel reservation and they have to spend the night in Central Park. And, <laughs> and it just, you know, there were a lot of movies like that. Uh, a lot of Martin Scorsese movies, um, the you know, crime crime dramas on TV that were uh, set in New York. Just a lot of depictions of New York as a bad place to to live, and that was kind of stuck in my head. And I, and I'd never been there, but um, you know, I kind of prejudged it. And at some point during my four years at CCS, I just decided. I don't know if I can do this. I don't know if going to New York is really for me. That just sounds scary and hard. And I had a um, an airbrush class, airbrush illustration class, and the teacher's name was Gary Ciccarelli. And uh, he kind of opened my eyes to this West Coast um, airbrush style that was happening out in California. And uh, it was like beautiful stylized um, images that were on album covers and movie posters and greeting cards. Okay. Um, lots of, you know, like pinup girls and palm trees and beautiful sunsets and, you know, just a real glamorized um, vision of the world, you know, through these airbrush artists. And I fell in love with that look and, and, Gary was great at teaching us how to do that style. And uh, I just remember suddenly going, okay, I think I think this is for me. You know, I'm going to mm-hmm. abandon my dreams of being a comic book artist. And, you know, when I graduate from school, I'll take my portfolio out to Los Angeles and I'll try to get some work doing this. Nice. Um, which is eventually what I did. I mm-hmm. I was out of school for um a year i think yeah i had a job doing uh technical illustration in livonia michigan and uh i was actually out for two years so so i i worked for a year worked on my portfolio at night and on the weekends um and then i got married to my high school sweetheart and then we moved to plymouth which is pretty close to where we're doing this podcast. Yeah. Um, and uh, and I continued to work on my portfolio. Mm-hmm. And it was about, um, it was close to a year, almost a year after we were married, I decided to take a vacation, take a week, and just go out to California. I felt like my portfolio was ready. Um, I made some appointments at, at various studios and art uh, ad agencies out there. 
And um, I had a friend who lived out there whose sofa I could sleep on and another friend who worked at a rental car. Uh, I worked at Avis and got me a cheap car. And uh, I just, you know, like kind of tooled around Los Angeles for a week, went to all these meetings. And um, one of the places where I interviewed was um, kind of a boutique ad agency called BD Fox and Friends, B period, D period, which stood for Brian David Fox. And he was the owner and he was a designer, had uh, designed a lot of movie posters for another company and then went, you know, kind of struck out on his own and started his own company in the late 70s. So by now it's like 1983. And, uh, you know, I showed, I showed my portfolio. Almost everybody I showed it to at all these various places, um, I would get to the end of the interview and it would be generally positive and they would say, well, you know, give us your leave behind and if something comes in, we'll give you a call. And I'm like, what do you mean leave behind? And they're like, well, like, you you know, do you have a card or do you have a like a promotional postcard that's got all your information on it? And I didn't have that. And also I was like, well, I live in Detroit, you know, I'm, I'm really looking for a studio job. I'm looking for like a full-time job. And everybody said, oh, we don't really do that here. That's not, that's not how it works in Los Angeles. In Detroit, that was the norm. Mm -hmm. I mean, you would get a job at a, at a studio or an agency and, you know, you were just in house and, you know, that was your full-time job. Sure. Everybody in Los Angeles was freelance, like all the (laughs) illustrators. And so I was, I was just thinking, how do I, how am I going to establish myself? Like, I, I don't want to go out there and like park cars or, you know, wait on tables while I'm hoping to get my break as an illustrator. I want to have something secure. Um, so anyway, I interviewed at, at BD Fox and uh, I remember Brian saying, um, the one thing I don't see in your portfolio, I don't see looks like you can really handle an airbrush and, and, you know, you're a decent illustrator, but I don't see any roughs. And what we could use quite often is people who can do like thumbnail sketches for poster designs, like movie poster designs. Um, so what I'd like you to do is, you know, go back home, um, just do some like fantasy uh, posters, you know, do something for Star Wars, do something for, you know, like whatever movies, you, you know, you're interested in, but do like your own version of the poster, but do, you know, just make it a rough sketch, just do rough thumbnail okay. sketches. So just pen, like pencil. Yeah. Just pencil, just pencil yeah. sketches and then send those to us. And then we'll, we'll talk after that. And so, oh, okay. Um, so it was disappointing, but I went home with a little bit of hope. And I, I did the I did what he asked, and I, I you know sent my drawings to him. And I was at work one day, and uh, the phone rang. We had like a phone in the kitchen, so like one of the managers calls me into the kitchen. He says, "Hey, there's a phone call for you. Oh, nice. Somebody from California." And I said, "Oh, okay." So <laughs> I get on the phone, and it's Brian, and he said. Uh, so I got your sketches. They look really good. And he said, you know, a lot of work just came into the to the agency, and I think we could use you. So can you be here tomorrow? <laughs> and I was like, this is like 3 in the afternoon, you know, on a Tuesday or whatever. 
And I'm like, I don't even, like, how would I, can I get a flight? I, I have no idea. And so I thought, well, I'm not sure if I can be there tomorrow, but I'm pretty sure I can be there the day after. And he said, okay, that's good enough. So oh. I booked a flight. And then, you know, two days later, I was in California. Wow. And, uh, and he said, we're going to try you out for a month. And if, if, you know, everything's working for you and everything's working for us, then uh, you'll have a full-time job working in-house. And the reason was, uh, you know, I, I could do rough sketches. I could do comps, which were kind of usually black and white, uh, rough painted versions of a final poster. So, you know, they, they would be done like, you know, 11 by 17. Um, they're done mainly just to show the producer of the film, here's an idea, kind of fleshed out, you know. So mm-hmm. this is kind of what the poster would look like. It would have all the type on it and everything. Um, the thumbnail sketches were usually just for the designers, like the in-house art directors. Uh, so so I, I could do the thumbnail sketches. I could do comps. I could do a finished poster if, you know, push came to shove. Mm-hmm. Um, I could do retouching. I could do photo retouching. So I, I checked a lot of boxes that they would normally have to bring in a freelancer for. And they figured... You know, he this guy is versatile enough that we could probably keep him busy all the time, so pay him a you know, a, a salary. Um and and it would work for us because it would save us money, you know, it'd be cheaper than hiring freelancers for all these various things. And it would work for him because he's looking for a studio job. He doesn't want to be a freelancer. So it was like kind of the perfect marriage. And uh I remember I was there two weeks and Brian took me out to lunch one day and he said, uh, well, I think it's working really well for us. How do you feel? And I said, working great for me. And he said, okay, why don't you call your wife and tell her you've got a job and, you know, start the process of moving yourself out here. And, uh, so that's how I ended up in California. (laughs) Oh, nice. Damn. That's a, that's an awesome story. Wow. In you know, I was thinking about movie posters and how, it, like, important they are. Like, because I think about movies that I really love and, like, how iconic some of their movie posters were mm-hmm. that just, like, really stand out, make me want to, like, see that movie. And even after seeing it, like, watching it again and again and again, um, I'm trying to think of some just through history. Well, I know that the ones that I saw, the ones that you worked on were legendary that like were from my childhood. Like, um, like which ones? Uh, was it Little Mermaid? Little Mermaid. I did the very first Little Mermaid. Yeah, I poster. remember watching that a lot as a kid. Well, um, the thing, the cool thing about movie posters, um, especially if they're iconic in their, in their imagery, um, you know, they have an initial function to attract people to the movie, you know, to bring people into theaters. You know, they're printed in, or they used to be, I don't know if they are anymore, but uh, printed in newspapers as an ad, mm. or you would, mm-hmm. now you see them online on, you know, movie websites. Yeah. Um, but also outside the theaters and the theater lobbies. So they have that function. But then they, 
they have like a secondary function as a statement. So if you're a fan of a certain movie or a certain movie actor, um, they end up on your wall, you know, yeah. they, they're framed on the living room wall of your apartment or in your bedroom and they become yeah. a statement about you, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's a way of identifying to your friends what, what you are, what you're into, what you like. Um, so, 100%. so yeah, if, if a movie's has a very iconic poster image, um, I've, I've been told by so many people that, uh, oh my God, I, you know, they find out I did a certain poster, uh, you know, oh my God, I had that poster on my wall growing up. I looked <laughs> at it every day. I can't believe, you know, yeah. it was you and oh, that's that kind so of thing. Cool. Yeah. Speaking of movies, um, do you have a favorite movie? It's a Wonderful Life is my favorite. That's a good one. Oh yeah, yeah. I and you know it's not just because I mean now it's considered a Christmas movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I I really love it just because of the message of it, um, which is um, everything you do in life. Like every every decision you make affects the future, and if you weren't there to do a certain thing, the whole future would be different. And so that's what George Bailey, the Jimmy Stewart character, learns in the film. Mm-hmm. He learns that his whole world was vastly different without him, without him in it. Like had he never been born, um, and you know, it's a little it's a little corny the way they depict it because they make it so negative. Like <laughs> it's hard to believe that like one person missing from the equation would make the town of Bedford falls, you know, such a, a hell hole. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it, po- it does point out, you know, all the little things that he did in his life that he thought were inconsequential or even that, got in the way of his dream, you know, because he wanted to be a, an architect and build bridges and, and he got stuck in this little town and, but all the, all the good things he did for people paid off and changed the future. So that, that gives me the, um, you know, the notion that I try to, you know, keep in my mind whenever I, um, make any kind of decision that the future is changed with every decision you make, either for good or for bad. Um, if I'm on the freeway and somebody cuts me off and I give them the finger um, and I you know, I get filled with road rage and I try to cut them off or whatever, mm-hmm. um, even if that doesn't end in a collision or somebody getting beat up or shot, the person that you know, I gave the finger to, you know, that might affect the rest of their day. They might go yeah. home and beat their wife or, you know, yeah. um, you know, do something negative as a chain reaction of what I did. Um, yeah. And then who knows to what extent that changes their future. Uh-huh. So I always try to keep that in mind, like always try to be positive and do good things, um, you know, because it, you don't want to be responsible for just doing something negative, even if it's like a little small inconsequential thing that might lead to, you know, a chain reaction that creates a bigger negative. 
Mm. Yeah. Two things come to mind. Uh, One, I like that you were very, you didn't even hesitate. You just know that that's your favorite movie. Oh, yeah. That's really cool. (laughs) (laughs) Because sometimes, like for me, I have to think about it a little bit. Um, But I would say, uh, for me, it's The Matrix. Um, Or, because I also put Goodfellas up there. I really like both of those Mm -hmm. films. Um, It's it's a hard question. Yeah. But I've, I've... it's one of those questions I've thought about a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I do. I mean, I have a lot of favorite movies. You mm-hmm. know, the original Star Wars is one of my favorites. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah. I mean, there's there's a ton. There are some movies that you know are a favorite um, because, like, if you're flipping through channels, and even if you have the DVD or the Blu-ray of the movie, like, if that movie's on, doesn't matter where it is in the movie, you will stop and watch the rest of yep. it. That's the. That's test. how you know it's a <laughs> yeah. favorite movie. So yeah. I have you know, like movies like um, that thing you do is one of them. I've heard of it. Yeah, um, a league of their own is another. Oh, one. I've heard. Yeah. Um, for some reason, like I'm not a huge baseball fan, but I love baseball movies. Oh. <laughs> so like I love Field of Dreams. I love uh, The Natural. I love Forty Two. Uh, yeah, a league 42. of their own. Yeah. So there's a lot of. Uh, they're usually vintage. They're usually like kind of yeah. set in the forties or fifties, mm-hmm. but uh, and that's that's a big plus for me. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's funny. The uh, uh, the second thing I, I was gonna say was there was a accounting teacher that I had in high school, and every year at the end of the year when I had him, because I had him quite a bit for accounting, he would give like the speech to uh, the seniors graduating and. He drew a timeline like on the whiteboard and he numbered it like as so like your age on the bottom, like mm-hmm. depicting your age. And it was like a lot or yeah, like a graph basically. And he it was super simple. He just said, All right, everything previously to right here, you can't do anything about anymore. It just is what it is. But look at all this over here that you can have an effect on now. Mm-hmm. So it's like, why focus on this little part over here when now you have this huge part on this side that you have all the possibilities mm-hmm. over here. And it, super simple, but uh, very powerful like concept. That Yeah, and it's something most people don't really think about. Or if they do, they don't really dwell on it. Mm-hmm. But... Um, yeah, it's just one of those things that I always try to keep in mind. Um, yeah, and I don't, you know, I'm human. I don't, I don't always succeed in that. I sometimes do crappy things that I, that I hope aren't gonna cause a chain reaction that <laughs> yeah. results in yeah. a, a hellhole future. <laughs> but yeah, well, at at um bd you said it was bd fox bd fox yes from there how does how do you get connected with the simpsons from there so the big connection there is um that's where i met matt graining who's the creator of the simpsons and he was um the, the week that i was hired they also hired a young art director named millie Smythe. 
and Millie was friends with Matt Groening. So she recommended him uh, whenever they needed uh, copywriting for the posters. So if we were working on a campaign for a poster, one of the big things is they need they would need a tagline. Um, those are usually the like the sort of the headline across the top of the poster mm-hmm. gives you like a little log line about it, and then you'd see the big image, mm-hmm. and then you'd see the um, you know the title down below, and then the credits. Mm-hmm. That was like your standard '80s movie poster. Um, so you know somebody had to write those copy lines. So they would bring in writers who would sit down and watch the film. You know, we would have like these rough cut versions of the films that nobody had seen yet. Mm-hmm. And uh, they would watch them and then they would go off and write, you know, a couple of pages worth of possible lines um, and then submit them. And usually they would have, you know, a number of different writers come in. So the chances of your thing getting accepted were, you know, kind of slim. You were, there was a lot of competition. But Matt was a clever guy, and you know he would uh, he would write stuff that worked. And uh, so I saw him around the office. I think I met him once, and then I would see him in the hallway. And uh, you know, so I knew him enough to say hi, mm-hmm. but that was about it. Um, and I knew that he had a comic strip called Life in Hell. Um, so. To some extent, he to me he was a bit of a celebrity, but um, it was like I said, pre Simpson. So he was he was still just a struggling cartoonist slash writer, you know. Yeah. Um, so flash forward um, a few years, uh, I'd moved on to another illustration studio, which is where I did the Disney posters. Um, and I did a lot of other like general advertising, unrelated to the movie industry, but, mm-hmm. but that's where the Disney stuff happened. Um, and I got a call one day from, this is like 1990, early 1990. And, uh, it's Millie, my friend Millie. And I hadn't seen her, in, you know, since I left BD Fox. So I hadn't seen her in like maybe four years. Mm-hmm. And she said, Hey Bill, how's it going? And, uh, we chit chatted a little bit and she said, um, you remember Matt Groening? And I said, oh, yeah, of course. And she said, well, I don't know if you've seen his new show, but he's got a show on Fox. And uh, he put me in charge of all the merchandise art. So I have, I'm, I'm trying to recruit artists to do artwork for merchandise because um, the show's starting to blow up and there's all these licensees that have, you know, are, are you know, kind of on the edge of uh, launching all these products that are going to be out soon. And we don't have enough artists uh, to do the artwork for the packaging. So um, if that's something you're interested, I don't know if you can do freelance where you're at, but you know if you can do any work on the side. But if you can, I'd love to talk to you because I know you're you're doing like the Disney stuff now. And she said, I remembered when we worked together, you were into cartoons and animation and all that. I said, oh, yeah, I'd love to. So I came over to her studio. And she kind of showed me how to draw the characters. And she gave me my first assignment, which um, ended up on a T-shirt. I think it ended up on, like, party napkins and a few other things. Oh, wow. But but I, I have I have the T-shirt. And uh, 
you know, it's really badly drawn, um, but it's uh, representative of the show at the time because, like, in the first season, everything was pretty funky and not really drawn all that well. Um, so I was, I was like, trying to draw in the style of the show but not really knowing the show yet. So, mm. you know, there's aspects yeah. of it that I would change if I if I had to go back. But I also have to keep reminding myself that, you know, the show, what's on model, what's considered on model for drawing the characters today is very different from back then. Mm-hmm. But uh, anyway, I did that job, and then they gave me another one, and, and I did, you know, three or four more. And the next thing I knew, I was so busy doing Simpsons freelance work that it was affecting my regular job. And so I went into my boss and uh, I said, you know, I've been taking on this freelance work for the Simpsons. And by this time, this is like two or three months later and the Simpsons is huge now. You know, it's, um, everybody knows about it. There's just a ton of merchandise so much so that they actually, in Los Angeles, they opened a Simpsons store for a while. Oh, they had a store that cool. was just not, in Westwood near uh, UCLA. They had this store that was nothing but Simpsons merchandise. Um, so um, so I went to my boss and I said, you know, I'm doing all the Simpsons work, but I, I can't keep up with it. Mm-hmm. And I don't want it to affect my job. So what if I brought it into the studio? And... Uh, you know, I could I could continue to work on it. We could bring in some other artists, and I could train them. And uh, you know, you'd be making money. I'd still be making money. And he said, "Great, you know, would love that." So mm-hmm. from that point on, the studio where I worked, which was um, Willardson Associates, um, it became like the hub for artwork for The Simpsons. So not only okay. stuff I was doing, but stuff that. Uh, you know, other artists that we brought in um, were pumping out. Wow. So so there was that. Um, one of the things about The Simpsons that is unusual, and um, I don't think any movie studio has made this deal since Matt Groening made his deal with The Simpsons, but when he made his deal... Um, the deal was Fox would own the Simpsons. However, his lawyer asked if he could retain the publishing rights because she said, you know, he's a cartoonist and he might want to do like a comic strip version of the characters. And when he first pitched the Simpsons, it was for the Tracy Ullman show. It was, um, they were like shorts. They were little short, what they call bumpers. Okay. So they would, Basically, like, you know, they'd have the the live sketch comedy. And then when they would go into a commercial, they would show a little Simpsons bumper. And it wasn't just the Simpsons. They had, like, two or three other animated things that never caught on, but the Simpsons did. Um, So they, you know, there would be, like, a little short cartoon that would take you into the commercial and then another one that would brought you back out of the commercial and then... They would go back into the live sketch comedy. Um, so Fox never thought that that was a big deal. They, you know, it was just throwaway stuff. They didn't think it was anything that would ever catch on. They mm-hmm. certainly didn't think it would go 
you know, be on the air for over 30 years. Yeah. Um, so they said, sure, you can, you can, Matt Granny can have the publishing rights. So what that allowed us to do was, um, you know, I was, I was doing the merchandise art, um, pretty much all day long. Eventually Fox hired me in house and I was doing it directly for them. Um, but like, that was like my day job. And then at nights and on weekends, I would work on Matt's publishing projects. So he was doing Simpsons books. Um, he did a magazine called Simpsons Illustrated. And uh, it was in that magazine that we started doing comics. Uh, so for the first issue, I was given a script. I was doing, like I did the, uh, I didn't do the cover for the first issue, but I did like a lot of the interior illustrations for articles and things. Mm-hmm. And uh, the editor called me, Steve Vance was the editor, and he called me one day and he said, uh, I got a script for a comic strip, you know, because Matt wants to have comics in the magazine. Um, do you want to draw it? And I was like, of course. Are you kidding me? You know, like, <laughs> that's all I wanted to do when I was a kid was draw comics. And yeah. So finally I get the chance to draw a comic strip. And so he sent me the script. I drew it. You know, everybody approved it. It was fine. And, uh, but I was, you know, I was super excited. I was like, oh my God, I finally got to draw a comic strip. I want to do this again. Oh, yeah. So I called Steve and I said, uh, hey, you know, I know we're starting to work on the second issue. So I was wondering, is there going to be another comic? Because if so, I'd like to draw it. And Steve said, um, yeah, actually, you know, Matt wants to expand the comics, you know, because in the first issue, it was just one page. Um, you know, he wants to have a whole comic section, but we are so behind. Um, nobody's had time to write anything. So I'll tell you what, if you want to write something, then you can also draw it. And I said, oh, okay, great. And I hung up the phone and I just went, oh, my God, what did I just agree to? <laughs> I've never written anything. I've never, I don't even know how to type. How can I, how, what am I, how am I going to do this? And uh, so I thought about it for a while and I, I'm like, how do you come up with a story? How does that work? And I started thinking about like funny things that happened to me when I was a kid. And I thought, well, maybe I could take like one of those stories from my childhood and then just turn me into Bart. And then turn whatever other adults are in the story or other kids into other Simpsons characters. Maybe that'll work. So that's a good idea. That's yeah. what I did. And I you know, I wrote I wrote this uh you know, just a one page comic, you know, seven, eight panels, something like that. Mm-hmm. And uh I got my wife to type it for me <laughs> so I didn't, you know, look like an idiot. <laughs> and uh I turned it in and Steve called me and he goes, Hey, this is really good. Um, you know, Matt liked it a lot. He just changed the punchline. So he just kind of rewrote the dialogue and the punchline. But other than that, it's great. So if you want to write another one for the next issue, you know, go ahead. Yeah. And so from that point on, I was writing and drawing the comics and, and the comic section started expanding. Mm-hmm. So I think eventually we got up to like 10 pages of comics in every issue. And that is what spawned Bongo comics because 
at the end of the first year of the magazine, we did an annual, and we made it a 3D issue. So it came with 3D glasses. Everything in the magazine, even the advertisements, were in 3D. So when we started thinking about you know, getting towards the end of the second year, um, what do we do for the annual? It's got to be another gimmick. You know, it can't just be a thicker issue. It's got to have something, you know, crazy. And somebody suggested, well, we're having so much fun doing the comics. Why don't we just make it a comic book? And so we decided to um, make it all comics um, and not even look like a magazine. Mm-hmm. You know, so we just made it comic book size. We even changed the title from Simpsons Illustrated to Simpsons Comics and Stories. But if you look inside in the indicia, it still says Simpsons Comics and Stories is the annual issue of Simpsons Illustrated. So it's still part of the magazine, but it's the first ever Simpsons comic book. And so that came out, and it was such a huge hit that it gave Matt the confidence to start Bongo. So he came to uh, me and Steve Vance and Cindy Vance, who was working with Steve. Um, Like she did all the lettering and all the, like she did a lot of the design work and the coloring. Um, So, so the, it was basically the three of us and Matt. And he said, how would you guys like to start a, a comic book company? And we'll just do comic books full time. And, you know, I probably was the first to have my hand up. <laughs> nice, yeah. Because uh, that was, you know, it was that dream come true. I finally, oh, yeah. you know, I I had this career as an illustrator, and I thought that's where my life was going. You know, I thought I would be a movie poster artist and do, you know, advertising and album covers, you know, record album covers and stuff like that. And then I found my way back into comic books. And is that um, Bongo Comics, is, is that still around today? No, Bongo ended, I think, in 2018. I think, okay. Yeah. Um, and by then I was gone. I was at Mad Magazine by the time that happened. But Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it folded. Um, you know, I think it was still profitable, just not profitable enough. Mm-hmm. And Matt had other stuff he wanted to work on. Mm-hmm. Um, Disenchantment, his new show on Netflix, is probably the main reason. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Now, um, well, I guess before I get to uh, Futurama, um, I wanted to ask you about The Simpsons. I was just watching a YouTube video, a, a video essay from this YouTube channel, uh, EMP Lemon, a uh, huge following on YouTube. And he did an episode on, it was titled, I think, Why Homer is My Enemy is the Best Simpsons Episode of All Time. Okay. And it's one that I, I wasn't familiar with it. Um, I don't know if you are. Uh, if you is that the Frank Grimes episode? Yes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Super interesting to hear his breakdown of that episode and him kind of tying what the Simpsons represent to like what like a the prototypical like American family mm-hmm. kind of is husband wife three kids 
son, oldest son, two daughters, you know, little infant, uh, husband works a nine to five. Mm-hmm. Um, mom stays home, takes care of the house. Yeah. Yeah. And you have this guy, Frank Grimes, who comes in, who's trying so hard to like make it in life. And yet he sees Homer who <laughs> doesn't have the same work ethic yeah. and yet has the perfect know, life, a perfect life. Yeah. yeah. And <laughs> it, he was kind of tying it to how at some point in our lives, like we're Frank. Mm-hmm. Um, but then we get to a certain point <laughs> where like we're Homer too. And it kind of is like this dichotomy between, you know, yourself at like different points in life, which I know is with me with, um, you know, having to feel like I have to like grind like extra hard. Like once I graduated Mm -hmm. uh, college, um, to now where I wouldn't say it's like, I don't try, but it's like things have kind of settled in their place and, you know, I don't get um, stressed out about, like, certain things. It's, like, kind of just some things are what they are. And it kind of with what you were saying earlier, um, with, like, positive energy, it's, like, why would I exert energy towards certain things that I have, like, no control over? Mm-hmm. Some people call it, like, controlling the controllables. Mm-hmm. Like you just you worry about your own box and don't get stressed out about, other things. Um, I thought it was really, really well done uh, video essay. Uh huh. I'll have to look that look, look that up. Yeah, I I could send it to you. It was it was long too. It was like an hour long video. Well, I think I don't know if he you know touches on this, but I think for most people, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence, and you never know what the other person is going through. You know, you can look at someone's life and go that's everything I want. You know, they have all the, the stuff that I want, but you know, what Frank Grimes didn't see is Homer's, you know, uh, aggravation with Marge's sisters. (laughs) And, you know, I mean, there's so many things in Homer's life that, you know, Homer would probably change and, and he's probably looking at somebody else's life going, uh, maybe it's Flanders. You know? Yeah, I was going to say. And that's yeah. why he's you know always yeah. so jealous of Flanders because Flanders seems to have the perfect life mm-hmm. um, to the point where everything Flanders does just irritates the hell out of Homer. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think I think everybody's always looking at the person next to them, going, "Okay, that guy's got it mm-hmm. figured out. He's yeah. got everything I want. I got you know. I need to." I need to be more like that or yeah. or if I can't be more like that I need to hate that guy cuz he's got it. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Do, do you ever hear I I've seen other YouTube videos on people doing video essays on the decline of the Simpsons. Um I've never watched any of those. Um Do you do you ever hear people talk Oh yeah, about, like, I hear people all the time. You like, know, oh, it's too much, 30 seasons. Yeah. Like, they've lost it. You know, with with something that big that so many people, I mean, The Simpsons has been a part of so many people's lives. Um, I mean, it's, it's only natural you're going to have 
you know, you're going to have a legion of hardcore fans that might even acknowledge that the show isn't as good as it was, but they don't care because it's still fantastic, still mm -hmm. great. Um, and you're always going to have naysayers, you know. I mean, yeah. with with uh, the comic books, you know, we had a lot of people. You know, we didn't get a lot of letters because I think our fans are generally not letter writers. Um, and in the days before there were... Uh, a lot of blog posts or Twitter <laughs> where you would you would get that feedback of people commenting on the latest thing that you put out. Um, so before that time, you know, we wouldn't hear an awful lot about what we did. You know, we wouldn't get a lot of feedback. But when we did, it was almost always positive. It was almost always oh, comments like, oh, that, that was such a great issue. It could have been an episode. Um you know, the writers are so good. It's so funny. You know, it looks just like the show. It's, you That's know, cool. and that was always job number one for me as the editor, mm -hmm. um, because I always felt like the comics were an extension of the show. Like you watch the show, but then, you know, if you've seen every episode, what do you have? Oh, well, there's Simpsons comics. You know, we can continue our enjoyment of these characters uh, beyond just the animated show. So I always tried to make the show as much, or the comics, as much like the show as possible. Um, so we would get a lot of comics like uh, comments like that. And then, you know, every so often, um, especially, you know, once message boards started happening and, you know, more, more people commenting online, um, you'd have somebody post something positive about one of the issues. And then, you know, then you read the chain of comments after and they would range from, I totally agree, you know, best comic book ever to, oh, I didn't even know there were Simpsons comics <laughs> to, yeah, I've read Simpsons comics. They're not funny, you know. Uh, so, you know, there, with something that huge, you're always going to have like a whole range of opinions. Um, oh, I'm sure. So, it, you know. It, it doesn't really bother me that people say it's not as good as it was. Um, and quite frankly, there's no way it really could be. Um, it's like Mad Magazine. Mm -hmm. When I was editing Mad Magazine, you know, Mad had its heyday. And it was really in the 60s and early 70s. And ever since then, it's been in decline. So by the time I inherit it, um, my job is to try to bring it back to its former glory. And the the job that I was given was um, don't alienate any of the current readers because most of our readership are subscribers. And we don't want people to cancel their subscriptions because that brings in a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, so even though, you know, magazines are failing, not as many people read physical magazines anymore, mad for some reason still has a ton of subscribers. So don't alienate those people. <laughs> However, we want you to bring in a new readership. We want you to get women interested. We want you to get uh, ethnicities other than white, okay. uh, white males interested. Um, basically, our, our demo was um, white males 11 to 16 years old and then white males 45 to 60 years old. So, like, kids 
kids would read it, and then when they discovered girls, generally, <laughs> they would stop reading it. But then when they became 45-year-old men, they would get interested in it again, either out of nostalgia or because say. they've got kids yeah. now, and they're like, hey, I read this when I was a kid, Junior. Yeah. Take a look at this. <laughs> yeah. Um, so that's what we had, and it was working okay, but they were like, you know, we need we need to bring in more people. So, you know, do articles that are, are going to appeal to a wider demographic. Um, th- those people in the hammock, we used to call the hammock basically 17 to 44. Yeah, so all those people in that in the hammock in that <laughs> hammock between the age of the young buyers and the older buyers, um, but also women and also mm-hmm. you know we want you know black people and Hispanic people and mm-hmm. Asian people and all the people that you know don't even know what Matt is. Yeah. Um, so that was the job. It was you know to to reimagine it, but not change it too much. So I kind of, I kind of leaned into the early days of Mad, um, when it was more subversive and um, it wasn't an institution. I tried to make it more like the young upstart that it was back in the fifties and sixties. Okay. Um, but it's hard to do that with a show like The Simpsons. You know, The Simpsons was the upstart when it started as a TV show. It was, um, you know. I'm Bart Simpson, who the hell are you? And underachiever and proud of it. Yeah, eat my shorts. Eat my shorts. It was all those things that made people go, oh my word, I've never heard such language on TV. Yeah, yeah. But that doesn't work anymore. You know, you can't, you you can't put all, can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Mm. So you just have Mm -hmm. to keep squeezing out the toothpaste and hope it's still fresh. Mm -hmm. And I think for the most part it is, you know, it's just, but if you're going to hold it up to what it was when it was that thing that nobody had ever seen before, everybody's seen it. You're not going to, you can't yeah. do that. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. I think about that with a show that I loved was uh, The Sopranos, and they had that uh, the movie release mm-hmm. two years ago, a year or two ago now, and I was kind of disappointed in it. But I think because I was comparing it to the TV show, which was, in my opinion, phenomenal. Um, But the movie lacked something. But again, I think because I was comparing it to the TV show, maybe if I didn't do that, like standalone, Mm -hmm. um, it's a decent film. The acting's pretty good. Um, I like that they showed... Tony's uh, like prequel story mm-hmm. and like him growing up, like who he was surrounded with, yeah. how exactly he got into the lifestyle he did, um, like a very cool concept. So, yeah, I films like that are tough because, um, I remember when I saw the X X Files film. Um, yeah, I remember that show. Yeah, I think they've done more than one film, maybe, but. I remember the, you know, the first X-Files movie, feature film in theaters. Um, I had seen the X-Files. I'd seen every episode. Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember thinking, you know, for people who know the show, this is kind of a nice extension of the show. But I, 
I sort of tried to put myself in the place of somebody who had never seen the show. And I thought, for someone who's never seen this show, mm-hmm. this movie is a mess. Like, <laughs> like, it makes no sense. There's all this stuff they refer to that um, the people who haven't seen the show are not going to be aware of, not going to understand. Um, and I felt a little that way with that um, Sopranos film. Mm-hmm. Was it Saints? Saints of... Oh, yeah. Many Saints of Newark. Of Newark. Yeah. Um, I kind of felt like, you know, I enjoyed it as a Sopranos viewer. Mm-hmm. But I thought, you know, if this is just a standalone film, uh, I don't know what it does beyond just giving you a lot of great backstory. Mm. But if if it's giving you backstory for something you are unaware of in the first place, yeah. then it, I don't know if it really works. That, yeah, that's a really good point. It's a very good point. Yeah, I, I remember there was a scene uh, in the show they talked about, like uh, Tony's mom, Tony's dad pulled out a gun and shot Tony's uh, mom's uh, through her hair. And they did it in Many Saints of Newark as like a, you know, like a callback to mm-hmm. it. But it's it's like, yeah, if you didn't watch the show, you wouldn't really know like the callback right. like to it. Yeah, it's kind of fan service. Yeah. But if yes. you're not a fan, then where's the service? <laughs> yeah. yeah. No, yeah, it's like in stand-up comedy when somebody... Like they tell a joke in the first five minutes and then towards the end of their act, they yeah. make a call back to it that everybody appreciates because yeah. we're all there and like, oh yeah, that's funny. You mentioned that. Yeah. And earlier. it makes for, you know, sometimes like in a stand up act, the, the last joke can be awkward. You know, if it's not like a hugely hilarious joke mm-hmm. where everybody's, you know, rolling on the floor. Yeah gives the comic the opportunity to say, thank you, everyone, good night, and get off the stage, then it can be awkward. It's like, really? That was the last joke? That was the best thing you had? But if it's a callback to an earlier joke that was funny, yeah, then it doesn't really have to be that funny. It's, it's satisfying. Yeah. Makes you go, oh, he wrapped it up nicely. Yeah, <laughs> that's a really good point. God, that's a really good point. Gosh. And I, it's funny because I used to do stand-up comedy. Oh yeah, a little bit. Yeah, um, just open mics. Yeah, like, for a few. That's years. hard. Yes. I mean, I, maybe it's body. not hard for everyone, but I know for me, I've never done stand-up, but I've been an MC many times. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, you know, as an MC, you're expected to say some funny things. Yeah. Um, opening remarks supposed to be kind of funny and witty. And then whenever you like, I was I would MC award shows, the Eisner Awards, at um, mm-hmm. San Diego Comic Con every year. Oh, cool. um, but you know, you're expected to say something kind of funny and witty about the people that you're bringing up on stage to yeah. present awards. And um, like every time before, before every joke or every you know witty remark out of my mouth or what I think is supposed to be a witty remark out of my mouth, there's that moment of just fear that, you know, as you're saying it, you're like, oh, God, I hope they laugh at this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I hope I hope there's no awkward silence. Um, that was and me. if there is, got to have something planned 
you know, like yeah, yeah. you gotta have something in your pocket to recover yeah. from the awkward <laughs> silence. Uh, ra- it's hard. Yeah, no, it, it was very challenging. Um, I bombed a lot, needless to say. Um, with what you're saying, I remember listening to Rodney Dangerfield. And whenever there would be times where he wouldn't get a laugh and he would say, oh, am I moving too fast for you guys over here? Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> or um, he had one joke about a, <laughs> a proctologist. He said like something about, oh, yeah, my proctologist. Nobody laughs. And he's like, God, that would have been better if you guys knew what a proctologist was. <laughs> yeah, something there's like there's a definite art mm-hmm. to recovering from a bad joke Yeah, or a joke that doesn't land doesn't have to be bad i've heard of other comedians too patrice o'neill uh if you've ever heard of Mm -hmm. him uh he said that whenever you're bombing you you just accept it and you pull the rest of the audience in with you like Mm -hmm. all right the ship's going down you just acknowledge it yeah we're all going down with the ship at that point and it almost makes it I think he was saying it almost makes it worse to try to like try harder not to. Mm-hmm. It's just you just we accept it at this point. I saw an uh, open mic comic once. Um, it was weird. It was like at this restaurant, and I was with my wife who was in a show, and they were it was like the cast going out after rehearsal. Mm-hmm. So everybody goes to this restaurant. We're all at this one table that's right by the stage. And we didn't know there was open mic going on. And it wasn't just open mic comedy. It was like people singing and doing different things. But this guy comes up, starts doing comedy. <laughs> and everybody in the cast, you know, everybody's chit-chatting. And he's trying to get our attention because, you know, it's a huge distraction. Yeah. Um, so really, really difficult situation for him. But he did, he like committed the cardinal sin. Um, <laughs> he like. He struggled for a while to to sort of get our attention. And then when he couldn't, he just kind of stopped his act and looked at us and said, do you have any idea how hard it is to get up here and try to make people laugh? So he started shaming us. Wow. Yeah. And we're just like, oh, my God, dude, (laughs) what are you doing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, you don't want to do that. Oh, it just made everything so much worse. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, that's tough. I don't think I ever did that, luckily. But I did, like I said, I I bombed quite a bit, which is part of the process. Yeah. Like, you have to be willing to to go there. Yeah. It takes guts. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. 100%. Um. Bill, I just had a couple more questions. Um, if you're st- if you're okay on time, still. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I um, I I did want to ask you about Futurama. Sure. Because future Simpsons is still going on at this point, but Futurama yeah. comes around, right? And now with this project, you you actually like you develop some of these characters that ended up on the show. Yeah, I, well, I worked with Matt Groening um, to develop the characters. Um, you know, there's I can see little parts of the characters sometimes that I go, oh, I added that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, I mean, generally, they're really Matt. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, at least 95 to 100 percent uh, Matt Groening on, on all the original cast. Um, basically, what what um, I've always felt my job was was to sort of um, act as a catalyst to to get Matt going. Because mm-hmm. the, the way it the way it started was I was you know working at Bongo, so I'm working for Matt Groening because as the owner of the publishing rights. He is the publisher of Bongo, mm-hmm. of, of everything we did at Bongo. So I'm working for him. And he came in one day and uh, he said, uh, hey, I'm working on this new show. And I was wondering if maybe you could come over to my studio like in the evening, a couple of nights a week, and help me visualize the characters. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I said yes and went over to the studio and um, I remember the first, I think the first night he gave me a couple of sentences, just written sentences about Fry and Leela. And it was as simple as Leela is a, an alien at the time she was an alien, not a mutant. Um, so it was like Leela is an alien who knows martial arts and lives in the future. And uh, possible love interest for Fry. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so like as simple as that. And then Fry was like um, delivery boy, cryogenically frozen, who wakes up in, you know, a thousand years in the future. And he's still a delivery boy, but for a galactic version of FedEx. It's like, okay. So I just started drawing. You know, like what? I thought those characters might look like. Mm-hmm. Oh, and he mentioned Leela was a Cyclops. So I know all, all the early drawings, you know, she just had one eye. Um, but, you know, different hairstyles, different, you know, body, body types, body shapes. Um, I think, you know, early on, Fry was, looked maybe a little more like a teenage Bart Simpson. Okay. Um, Bender was also, you know, probably within the first week I was working on Bender. And originally Bender was the Planet Express ship Cook. (laughs) So, like, his only function was he was in the galley of the ship. And whenever they were on the ship making deliveries, he would serve up the meals. And they were always inedible to humans. (laughs) They were always, like, motor oil-based, and (laughs) they would have gears and, you know, stuff that only a robot could eat yeah um so that was that was going to be like the running gag and i remember originally matt said you know he's kind of like homer you know maybe he's a little stupid um etc etc so uh so I, i just started doing a lot of drawings and showing them to matt and then he would look at my stuff and go Mm, that's not really what I was thinking, but I kind of like this part, you know? Mm -hmm. And then he would do a drawing. He would do a drawing based on my drawing. Mm -hmm. And then I would take that and I would do like a refined version of that. And we would do that, you know, multiple times with the same character. Um, so ultimately, you know, they, they really look, they're really almost a hundred percent Matt's, designs um but i i I always take pride in the fact that 
Matt really initially didn't know what they should look like. So he needed somebody to sort of show him what he didn't want to make him realize what he did want. (laughs) Mostly. Yeah. And then, and then later, you know, in the development process, I, you know, I started actually doing designs for the show, you know, things that actually made it on the screen. But, um, yeah, I mean, I look at the look at the main cast, and I I see little things that I go, yeah, that was my contribution, <laughs> but not not a whole lot. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, very cool. So anyway, I was you know really just helping him develop the show in order to pitch it, mm-hmm. and then once he pitched it to Fox and they bought it, I was really not involved for a little while because I was you know just went back to my my bongo work mm-hmm. full time. Um, but when, when the, when he sold the show, he said, I want, you know, Fox said, we're going to put you up in some offices in one of our buildings. And he said, okay, but I would like my publishing company to be in the same space so that I can just be there. And if I have a meeting, I don't have to drive across town. Mm-hmm. You know, we can all be in the one place together. So they put us down the hall from the Futurama production offices so I was there, and the producers of the show knew what my involvement had been with the development. So they started working on the pilot episode, and almost on a daily basis, somebody would come down to my office and say, hey, could you give us like um, a bunch of ray guns? Can you draw just like a page full of ray guns mm-hmm. or spaceships or, you know, like just kept asking me to visualize stuff for them yeah and then it it increased it got to be more and more and more and finally it was like a second job like i was doing so many designs for the pilot that i went down to um one of the producers and i said hey i don't want you to get the wrong idea i'm really having fun with this but it's really become like a second job and i don't want this to you know affect bongo i think i can handle both but um i kind of feel like i should get paid for what i'm doing because i'm yeah. not and <laughs> and also feel like i should get a screen credit you know i should if i'm going to be working on the show i should actually be working on the show okay yeah. and they agreed they said uh yeah you're right you know sorry we you know everything's crazy you know we just weren't really thinking about it but yes you're absolutely right so what do you think your credit should be and I was like, I'm thinking, I didn't know you got to choose your credit. I thought it was something they just like gave you. Yeah. Uh, and I said, well, I, gosh, I don't know. I said, you know, mostly what I do is character design. So I guess character designer. And the producer said, oh, no, 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 no. You can't, can't have that. Because, <laughs> you know, Rough Draft is the animation studio that's doing all the animation. I'm working directly for Matt. Even though I'm doing art on the show, I'm not working for the animation studio. Okay. So two separate things. And they said, you know, it it, it would be stepping on some toes if we gave you that credit. And I said, well, I don't know. Do you have any suggestions? They said, well, how about art director? And I said, well, that sounds better than yeah. character designer. Okay. <laughs> yeah, really? Yeah. I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. We don't have an art director, so you can be the art director. Nice. It's like, okay. So for most of the 
run of the show, the initial run, I was really a designer. I was, you know, designing characters, vehicles, props, um, celebrity heads in jars, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but the person who was really the art director was Millie Smythe, the person I mentioned earlier, who was the art director I had worked with, who introduced me to Matt mm -hmm. and got me involved in Simpsons merchandise art. So Matt had brought her on as a co-producer. And really, the job she was doing was art director. She was working with the animators. They would send these model designs over to her every day. Mm -hmm. She would make notes. She would send them on to Matt and David X. Cohen uh, to get their input. And then uh, so she was like a liaison between the animators and Matt and David. Um, but she was, you know, giving them notes like, you know, this character doesn't really look the way the script describes him. I think the hair should be bushier mm -hmm. or... I think this character should be fatter or whatever. You know, she was making those calls. Um, well, Millie ended up getting pregnant and went on maternity leave. And when that happened, they gave me her workload. <laughs> so for a period wow. of a number of episodes, I was actually doing the job of art director. Wow. <laughs> That's cool. Wow. Yeah, that art director sounds like, I just think, like, director. Like, you're the head, like, top. Yeah, you know, a lot of people um, confuse director, animation director, and animation art director. Um, and I've been referred to as Simpson or Futurama director Bill Morrison. <laughs> um, it's, it's a little awkward. <laughs> and usually if that happens... And it's awkward to correct somebody about it. Mm -hmm. I usually don't. Mm -hmm. But if it's something where I'm like, yeah, I know one of the Futurama directors is going to hear this or see this. <laughs> and they're going to be like, what the hell, Morrison? Yeah. <laughs> um, this guy. Yeah. So so I usually correct it and say, you know, well, no, I'm not, I wasn't a director. The director of, a, of an episode, you know, they would have several different directors. And they mm -hmm. would rotate. And, you know, I don't know how many... You know, a director might direct every fourth or fifth episode, something like that. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. But um, they're the ones that are basically, um, you know, sometimes the directors actually do the storyboards or they're overseeing the storyboards. They're overseeing the um, character designs, the background designs. You know, they they get everything to the point where, at least for our show, you know, they would get it to the point where they felt like they could send it over to the producers. I would look at her, or most often Millie would look at it as mm -hmm. art director. And then and then it would go up the chain to Matt and David. They would make their comments and then everything would get kind of polished. Okay. But the but yeah. the director is the one who, you know, they work on the timing of the animation. Um sometimes they work with the voice actors even. Okay. You know, they're at the recording sessions. So that's a big job. That's a huge job. Um, and the director, like I said, is not working on every episode, whereas the art director, still a big job, but you're you're doing like a smaller workload, but across every episode. Okay. So we, you know, as the art director, 
you know, I had a constant stream of designs coming. Um, you know, so after, after all the designs were set for one episode, I would start getting designs for the next one. Very cool. Okay. Nice. Um, Bill, just one last question. Uh, and just to wrap things up, um, what are you, what are you currently working on? Well, since uh, since my wife and I moved to Michigan, back to Michigan from California, I've been a freelance artist. Uh, So I'm I'm working on really kind of a a a cornucopia of (laughs) (laughs) different things. (laughs) I like that word. Um, Yeah, I uh, you know I I'm still working as an illustrator. Um, I'm still working as a comic artist and writer. Um, I'm still doing some animation design work occasionally, and I'm teaching, uh, animation character and environment design at CCS, my alma mater. Oh, nice. Yeah. So I do that a couple days a week. Very cool. Um, but some of the recent things I've worked on, if anybody knows, uh, Svenguli, uh, which is, a TV show that's on MeTV on Saturday nights. Uh, Svenguli is a horror show host, so he shows horror movies, but he does comedy bits like okay. in between the movies. Um, I just did uh, what was initially a T-shirt design, but I did it as a like a 1940s movie poster, so it looks like a poster kind of for one of the films that he shows all the time, like the Universal monster horror films. Okay. Um, but it's featuring him, you know, instead of Frankenstein or the Wolfman. Um, but I just found out they're turning that into a print. So it's going to be, it's now released as a mini print along with these five, four other designs by other artists, but they're actually going to make it into a, like a large, um, I think probably like a 14 by 20 size suitable for framing hang on your wall kind of thing. So I'm kind of like back to my movie poster roots nice. with that one. Yeah. Um, I've got a, um, I've got a deal with a company in France who initially I pitched them some ideas uh, for animated either TV shows or films. And there were two of the pitches that they liked quite a bit. So our original idea was to develop those, like develop pitches, like more elaborate pitches um, for those two ideas as probably like a couple of animated TV series. And um, so the, you know, the more elaborate pitch would involve a Bible, um, you know, color character designs, basically what I was doing with Matt Groening on Futurama, like, like a real formal pitch to a network or a studio. Um, But it turns out that this company has um, launched a publishing arm. So they're now starting to do comics as well. So they said, look, instead of like putting a lot of time into developing this as a, a show or a movie, which, you know, may get bought, but maybe not, why don't we do it as a comic? And then all the development is already done. It's it's done in the process of making the comic. Mm-hmm. And then we can pitch that. Um, like after the comic's out, we can then pitch it as a show. Okay. So I'm working on that right now. Um, 
I do a lot of commissions. Uh, a lot of Simpsons fans uh, have now gotten to the age where they're collecting artwork. And so I get requests to do, you know, sketches or um, sometimes more elaborate finished, like recreations of old comic book covers, um, you know, things like that. Very cool. Yeah, so I do a lot of that. I, you know, that's kind of like fill-in work between jobs. Yeah. Uh, I have a commission list going. So if I'm not working on a regular job, I'll go to my commission list and start. Oh, wow. Okay. You know, working through that. Wow. Yeah. So still staying busy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Probably more yeah. so than, than uh, well, I won't say more than ever, but once I became an editor... Um, I found that I was, I was still busy, but not doing artwork or writing as much. Mm -hmm. I was mostly overseeing other people doing those jobs. Um, so this is really fun and exciting and refreshing for me because now I'm spending really every day creating, which I hadn't been able to do for years. I would do it occasionally. Yeah. When I was editing, like I would do a cover or if I had, you know, a lot of time, I might write a short story. But um, this is the first time in many years where, I've, you know, I'm, that's basically my job other than my teaching mm -hmm. is, you know, my job is just being creative every day, either writing or drawing or painting. Wow. That sounds like the life. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Bill, for those who want to get in touch with you, see your work, what's the best way that they can do that? Um, either Instagram or Facebook. Um, nice. I'm not on Twitter any longer, but those two platforms. Nice. And, and you can find me, um, my, my studio name is Atomic Battery Studios. So you can find me on Facebook at, um, Bill Morrison slash Atomic Battery Studios. Um, Instagram, I am at Atomic Battery. Awesome. And I will include uh, links to those okay. in the description of the of the episode, too, for people to check it out. Terrific. Um, yeah, we did uh, – yeah, wow, we're at uh, hour 46. Wow. Uh, Holy yeah. crap. This is going to be two episodes. So, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I um, I really appreciate you taking the time to come out here and uh, talk to me. And uh, you've had a very, very interesting life. It's awesome uh, to hear all this stuff that you. It has done. been a wonderful life. See yeah. what I did there with the callback. <laughs> yeah. See, I set you up for that. I, I that was my plan all along. To serve it up. Um, no, seriously though, I I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Bill. It's my um, pleasure, Chris. Thanks for inviting me. Absolutely. Yeah. And uh, for everyone out there, um, thank you so much for listening. My name is Chris. This has been Chitash. Take care, everybody.